Can we save Twin Sun from the evils of Dr. Funfrock? Well, let's find out with Little Big Adventure this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Welcome to episode number 49 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again, as always, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So thanks, everyone, for your uh, your patience. Show's a little late. Things got kind of out of hand last week over the uh, the Easter holiday. I had some uh, family trip to go on, and I wasn't feeling well, and all kinds of crap happened. And so now we're here, and we're doing a show and it's all well and good. Uh, it's been a fun weekend so far. Uh, <laughs> did a bit of relaxing yesterday. Meant to change my winter tires and put the uh, the summer tires back on, or the the all season tires, I guess you want to call them. Since uh, since the snow is gone now for good, we can only hope. Though uh, though my wife's cousin actually just posted on Facebook that uh, he lives in uh, in Vermont. And he was actually out skiing today because uh, there was some fresh snow on the ground here at the end of April. Which, uh, yeah, it's like the never-ending ski season this year. Anyways, uh, <laughs> enough about the weather. As always, enough about my my not-so-interesting life. Let's get into uh, what little, well, not little, what, uh, what news there is. So, first in the news this week, uh, this is somewhat related to the show, but not directly, but uh, I picked up Diablo 3 Reaper of Souls, and I have been playing it uh, pretty incessantly, basically any free time that uh, that I've been able to find, I've I've been playing Reaper of Souls. Now, honestly, I I didn't play a ton of Diablo three, a ton of vanilla Diablo three when it came out. Uh, it just didn't feel quite right to me. I'm a big fan of Diablo, love Diablo one, love Diablo two, uh, but with this expansion and the new patch 2.0 on Diablo three, it really feels like they finally dialed it in perfectly. We're back to Diablo's roots. And one of these days I'll have to do a Diablo episode where we jump back, uh, you know, to before Battle.net and all that stuff and talk, you know, 1996 original Diablo but uh, until then, if you're a fan of Diablo at all and you haven't gotten around to playing it or you played it when it first came out, uh, I guess over a year ago, I guess it's been a year, maybe more than a year ago, uh, if you haven't played Diablo 3 much, 
then uh, I suggest you pick up Reaper of Souls. It really, really, you know, the drop rates are awesome again. And, you know, it's just like this, the loot pinata system that uh, that we know and love from uh, from that game series. Next, I've got some very cool Star Citizen news from PAX East. So a video was released uh, of the dogfighting module in Star Citizen. It's basically a video of the of the demo, the preview at PAX. And all I can say about it is that I am incredibly impressed. If this is what Star Citizen is going to be, then my hopes and my faith that I've placed in Chris Roberts have not been misplaced. Uh, for a bit more firsthand info, it turns out Martin was uh, actually at PAX East and uh, dropped me a bit of a voicemail talking about being at the panel. So take it away, Martin. Hey, Joe. It's been a long time since I uh, sent in a voice message. I usually write. Uh, this is Martin, and I just wanted to let you know that I was at the pre-PAX East event for Star Citizen with uh, Chris Roberts and CIG, and I had a blast. Uh, I was a part of the crew there in, uh, in the big mosh pit and uh, got to see everything firsthand. I, afterwards, I went to go talk with Chris Roberts, and he signed like a million of my things, including my uh, Super Nintendo Wing Commander cartridge. Uh, that you so very much despise, Ooh. and uh, also my Wing Commander 2 CD. So that was pretty awesome. I uh, got a bunch of posters. Uh, the module looks great. I can't wait for Star Citizen, and um, and I hope everything works out for you in the in the next podcast. Have a good one. Sorry about the boo. Anyways, uh, there's another little follow up message. So uh, here we go again. I just wanted to let you in on a little tidbit since uh, I kind of skipped my mind last time. Um, when Chris started signing my cartridge, he actually kind of freaked out a bit. He was like, whoa, a Super Nintendo cartridge. I haven't seen one of these in a long time. And he inspected it, and it was really cool. And I told him, hey, you know, this port isn't so bad. He said, oh, yeah, I know. This was a really good port. Uh, it was, you know, it was better than some of the, the remakes they made on the PlayStation that he wasn't happy about. Uh, there was, like, that Super Wing Commander that was, like, really freaky and, like, completely different. Uh, but, yeah, just thought you should know that Chris Roberts likes uh, the Super Nintendo cartridge version of Wing Commander, and you don't. So that, that makes you wrong. Your opinion is wrong. It's invalidated. Hope you can sleep at night. <laughs> Bye. Well, thank you, Martin. And uh, no, you know what? I think Chris Roberts is wrong. I don't think he remembers. He must be. He looked at it and he said, oh, I haven't seen one of these in a long time. I'm going to be nice to this guy, and I'm going to tell him that it was good. But honestly, it's really super awesome cool that you got to meet Chris Roberts and, and you got to be in the crowd there and, and see everything firsthand. Really, really cool. Like I said, from the video that I saw, they just wow, it's, it was mind-blowing. It was just like everything that I would want, at least from you know a flight physics perspective and, and all that. It was actually funny because in the video, uh, I guess the guy wasn't really paying attention who was... Uh, who was running the show and uh, right out of the gate, he kind of crashed into the station and blew up and everyone kind of laughed at him. But um, yeah, super, super cool. And uh, Chris Roberts was just being nice to you. He doesn't like the Super Nintendo version. So I will sleep just fine tonight. So thanks so much for that, Martin. And if any of you guys out there listening, uh, you know, ever are at any shows like PAX or, you know, GDC or anything like that, and, and you see something cool, hey, drop me a line. That's like, you know, super, super awesome stuff. I don't know. There aren't really many uh, games conferences uh, uh, here in Toronto, at the very least, or uh, in general. There's fan expos and stuff that uh, I could go to, but it's they're not really games focused. So uh, yeah, any any cool firsthand account stuff like that, that, that that you get, please let me know about it. 
Really, really cool. So next in the news, yeah, weird. We're listening to a voicemail in the news section. Crazy, huh? Anyway, so uh, I know I don't usually talk about Atari on this show, but this news is just too damned interesting not to report. So it's been flying around back and forth that there's this documentary team that uh, has been looking for uh, for the the, the mythical uh, landfill in New Mexico where uh, they were Atari or whoever made the game infamously buried uh, the uh, E.T. Atari game cartridges because the game was so incredibly awful that no one bought it. Uh, well, after some research uh, and some permits and all that stuff, uh, the, there has been some excavation done and they've found... Uh, these these ET cartridges and a few other Atari cartridges uh, at a landfill site in New Mexico. Now I actually owned a copy of uh, of ET, or well, I guess it was more my brother's because frankly I was very very young when we had our Atari twenty six hundred, and uh, all I remember about ET was uh, that the game was kind of creepy. There like wasn't any music or anything. It was just this kind of very quiet game with these loud Atari sound effects every once in a while. And uh, I kept falling into holes and not knowing what to do. Now, apparently I was told on the Facebook group today that the falling in holes is what you're supposed to do. But I I feel like I wasn't able to ever actually get out of the hole. But uh, again, this is me being like six years old and really having no freaking clue what to do. Uh, you know, maybe I should try it today and, and play through and do like I do with uh, with the show and see if uh, if ET holds up today. Somehow, I expect that uh, that it won't. Now, this isn't something I was going to talk about uh, on this show because honestly, it has nothing to do with uh, or very little, at least, to do with uh, with Dawson Windows XP gaming. But uh, there was a bit of there was a post actually. I think Martin posted it on the. Uh, on the Facebook group and uh, you know, it caused a pretty active thread. So I guess I might as well uh, bring it up. So I got a bit of star Wars news. So as some of you know, uh, I started another podcast with some friends of mine called the star Wars stacks, where uh, each month we discuss a different star Wars expanded universe novel. Well, since Disney took over and you know, the whole LucasArts closing thing happened and and all of that. uh, One other thing we haven't really known much about is, uh, the fate of the existing Star Wars expanded universe. Well, I think as of a few days ago, Friday, something like that, uh, we do know. It turns out Disney has formed what they're calling uh, the Star Wars Story Group. And uh, and this group is going to oversee all Star Wars storytelling going forward. That means everything that comes out from now on in any form, be it video game, be it movie, be it TV show, be it book, be it comic, will be integrated into a new official Star Wars canon. So the current canon basically includes the six Star Wars movies and the Clone Wars cartoon series. Uh, they've also stated that in addition to these things, obviously the new Rebels series is is going to be in there and um, that going forward, they will not be beholden to existing uh, expanded universe stories. So those stories are by no means gone. So this, you know, Grand Admiral Thrawn, Merit Jade, Heir to the Empire, Jedi Academy, all this stuff, and frankly, even, you know, maybe even some of the stories in uh, the X-Wing games and TIE Fighter and all that stuff, which I don't know if those were ever really official canon, but still very, very cool storytelling, especially in TIE Fighter. Uh, They're not being thrown away, but basically what Disney said is we want to tell new stories and we don't want to be stuck with this big, 
cruft and baggage of, you know, 20 years of some good and some not so good uh, storytelling. So, of course, this sparked a ton of nerd rage. Uh, I, for one, am interested to see what they end up doing. And, you know, I think I said this, I post, may have posted this over on Gamers with Jobs and that thread over there, but it's basically this. In my opinion, Disney isn't dumb. They're a very large, very successful company. And, you know, if what they've done with Marvel is any indication, uh, I think they're going to do a good job. I mean, if anything, Star Wars is a bigger deal for more people than Marvel Comics are. So, you know, I'm confident that they're going to tread carefully. So if you want to know more about this, uh, a special episode of Star Wars Stacks will be out on May 4th, where Jen, Chris, and I are going to discuss our thoughts on this whole kind of new, uh, new universe in more details. So you can check that out. Search for iTunes for Star Wars Stacks. Uh, we don't have a website just yet, but uh, it's, it's a coming. So uh, that's it. Enough plugging my other show, enough talking about Star Wars since it's not really related. But hey, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and this is my podcast, so I'm going to talk about it if I want to. Okay, so after the last few weeks where I was completely inundated with uh, tons and tons of email, uh, just one this week, nice nice little short one, and uh, it's from Mike, and he writes, Howdy, I am listening to your episode from January 5th and heard you mention Freddy Farkas, Frontier Pharmacist. I was lucky enough to be working at Sierra at the time and was friends with Josh Mandel and had met but couldn't call myself a real friend of Al Lowe's. Uh, my buddy Larry Buchanan whom I met while working at Sierra, was the technical support liaison for the game, but he left to go and work for Sega a ways into the development of Freddy Farkas, Frontier Pharmacist. So Josh asked if I would sub in for Larry until the game's release, and of course, I was happy to. Working on that game was one of the highlights of my time at Sierra. Uh, if you think Al and Josh are fun and funny on their own, together they were one of the very best teams Sierra ever had. I really wish they had done more period-type adventure games. I think they could have had a series of very memorable games together. So why am I writing? Just to say that it's nice to hear your work is remembered and hopefully thought well of even all these years later. Loving the podcast, it's so good to hear about all these great titles you cover. Well, thank you, Mike. And you know that honestly, when 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 I when I read the when I read your email here, like my jaw kind of hit the floor. It's really, I mean, you know, as much as you being someone who worked on 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 games that I talk about you know, like to hear that people remember your work. And I mean, based on interactions that I have with people online, people love, you know, Sierra adventures and, and things and things like that in general. And especially Freddy Farkas, it was such a unique game. You know, I, I still kind of every once in a while, the, uh, the theme song or the, uh, you know, the little byline, the Western-y kind of uh, theme with the bouncy ball lyrics and stuff that kind of pops into my head and I can't help but hum it for an entire day. And, uh, yeah, just love it, and and I mean, hell, thank you for for putting the time in to to make something really really cool that that you know I personally remember fondly many 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 years later, and uh, I think I'll definitely be doing a Freddy Farkas episode. It's such a unique game that it does deserve it does deserve some recognition. I think it's one of those kind of later, I think at least I think it's later off the top of my head. Sierra Adventures that. Uh, that probably a lot of people missed out on. It wasn't quite as big name as King's Quest and Space Quest and Police Quest. It was kind of this one-off and uh, very, very unique, very fun. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much for that email. Really, really cool. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. 
time for all right on to our main topic for the week little big adventure now without trying it appears that i've mucked around and chosen two games from french developers in a row uh, the little big adventure series consists of two games the first of which was released in 1994 and now even here in this first little part, which is usually like one sentence, things are already getting a bit convoluted. So you may know the first game in the Little Big Adventure series as Little Big Adventure if you lived in Europe. However, if you lived almost anywhere else, you know the game as Relentless Twinsons Adventure. Uh, the games were developed by Adeline Software International and uh, the European version was published by EA and the North American version, I think North America and everywhere else, basically, uh, was published by Activision. All right. Whew. Now that that little bit of confusion is done, let's do what we usually do and talk genre. So Little Big Adventure is considered an action adventure or arcade adventure game. Uh, this is a pretty general category, which can cover Many types of games ranging from something like The Legend of Zelda to something else like System Shock to, frankly, Grand Theft Auto. Uh, so as we do with hybrid genres like this, the best way to define them is to kind of break them down. So the main thrust here is adventure. So if you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, you'll know we've, visit, we've visited adventure gaming uh, quite a bit thus far. So we know all the tropes of this genre very, very well. You control a protagonist who's given a quest early on in the game and, you know, through the solving of puzzles, interactions with other characters and interactions with the world around them, uh, the quest or the problem or whatever it is, is resolved and the game is complete. So that's a pure adventure game. But here we've got an action adventure. One of the hallmarks of pure adventure games is that all the puzzles are very cerebral. Uh, you could generally take your time, think things through, try a bunch of different solutions, which hopefully eventually results in stumbling upon uh, the proper one. The pacing of the game is what the player makes it. The lack of arcade sequences or any form of Twitch gameplay is a thing that many pure adventure game enthusiasts swear by. I will never forget the incessant complaints of Sierra game fans against the arcade sequences included in the Space Quest series. The outcry was so intense that later games, especially off the top of my head, the uh, Space Quest 1 remake, made these Twitch sequences optional. Now, you wouldn't get full points if you didn't do them when you finished the game, but if you didn't want to worry about it, you could just skip it. So with that in mind, an action adventure game is an adventure game which is generally faster paced than kind of a more pure adventure. All the hallmarks of adventures are still there, interacting with the world, NPCs, cerebral problems, locked doors, and you know, generally engaging storyline to progress through. However, there are also elements of real-time danger. You may have to fight or avoid enemies, you might have to complete tasks in a given time limit, or otherwise hurry or modify your approach to a given situation based on some kind of let's call it external force. Uh, you know, there can also be physical challenges in, uh, in these games, such as kind of some limited jumping puzzles, not to the point where it's a platformer, but you may have to jump over a thing every once in a while. Uh, you might have to use cover, bunch, bunch more stuff like that. As I said, the action adventure genre is very broad and exists across a very wide spectrum. Um, where a little big adventure exists closer to the adventure end of the spectrum, 
Other games, especially since the decline of kind of the pure adventure genre, tend to trend a bit closer to the action end of the spectrum. Uh, think of games like Half-Life or Halo. These are action games that have more of a story element to them as opposed to, say, Wolfenstein 3D. Okay, so speaking of games with a story, this game has one, so let's talk about it. Uh, the game's intro does a pretty good job of explaining the world we find ourselves in, so let's listen in. Twin Sun is a relatively new planet on the outskirts of a remote galaxy. Its rotational plane has stabilized between two suns. There is a huge mountain range running along its equator that divides the planet in half. Each hemisphere is warmed by a single sun. The northern hemisphere, with its orange sky, is warmer than the southern hemisphere. Except for a polar region, the planet's climate is clement. The formation of life forms on the planet was thus favorable. Four species developed over the course of the centuries. The spheros, the rabbi bunnies, the quetches, and the grobos. They all lived in harmony until a tyrant named Dr. Funfrock reared his ugly head. Ever since Funfrock's rise to power, the population has been living under a reign of terror. Funfrock set up a police state where suspicion is omnipresent. He is all-powerful and controls the people with an iron fist. He has at his disposal two high-tech weapons that ensure his power, cloning and teleportation. He can clone any of the species at will and subsequently recruit these clones into his ranks. He can then deploy these clones instantly through a network of telepods that are dispersed over the entire planet. A few years ago, under the guise of protecting the population, Dr. Funfrock herded the planet's habitants into the southern hemisphere. The repression is harsh. Every day brings more and more arrests, and the people slowly begin to lose hope. In an effort to keep their spirits up, the people sometimes evoke an ancient legend along with the name of a goddess, Sendel. The mentioning of the legend, or Sendel, has since been forbidden by Dr. Funfrock. Meanwhile, a young Quetch named Twinson has been having strange dreams. We then break into kind of a musical interlude, which uh, shows us the imagery of Twinson's dream. Uh, we see Twinson flying atop what looks like a dragon. Uh, he lands on top of a snow-capped mountain, where he witnesses basically some kind of energy beam firing at one of twin sun's suns we then pull out to a view from space the beam hits the sun and for a moment nothing happens then suddenly the entire planet explodes we then cut into the game so because of his dreams twinson so let's get this straight right now that's twinson the person not twin sun which is where twin the planet on which twin sun lives so <laughs> Anyways, it's a little bit confusing, but because of Twinson's dreams, uh, he has been committed to an insane asylum. And this is where we find ourselves at the beginning of the game. Uh, it's clear that Twinson needs to escape and make his way back to his home and his girlfriend, Zoe. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, story time. So... Or, sorry, not story time, gameplay time. We just talked about the story. So that's the beginning of the story right up until that point. And we will get a bit farther into it here in the gameplay section. But 
first, we have to talk about how we control Twinson and how we're going to get him out of this damned insane asylum cell that we are locked in. Uh, So, unlike other isometric games of the early 90s, which only allowed movement in four directions, in Little Big Adventure, Twinson can move in any direction he wants. This is accomplished via the arrow keys on the keyboard. Up makes Twinson move forward in whichever direction he's facing, down makes him move backward, and the left and right arrows rotate Twinson clockwise or counterclockwise. The game's camera is also somewhat controllable. It doesn't scroll along with Twinson in the middle all the time, but uh, will only automatically update its view position in one of three cases. First, if Twinson moves close to an edge of the screen, the camera will recenter on him. Second, if you enter an in-engine cutscene, uh, the camera will be placed at some predetermined point and uh, will not be manually controllable until the cutscene is over. Finally, in most cases, you can manually center the camera on Twinson's current location by pressing enter. A somewhat free camera is at times both helpful and also a hindrance to your play. Uh, The camera can also be zoomed in one level by pressing F5. Ostensibly, this is to see if you haven't missed anything, but really I think it's just a feature they felt like putting in because I don't really see any uh, situations where it comes in super handy. Next, and possibly even more important and you know core to the gameplay of Little Big Adventure is a mechanic known as behavior modes. So behavior modes control exactly how Twinson translates your control inputs into actions. There are four modes, each with unique actions and abilities. Now the standard mode is simply known as normal. In normal mode, Twinson walks around at the standard pace Pressing the spacebar in this mode causes Twinson to enter into conversation if there are any NPCs nearby. This is also known as executing an action command. That's hitting the spacebar. Next, we have what is known as athletic mode. Now, this mode is helpful if you need to move quickly to either get somewhere quick or get out of a potentially dangerous situation. In athletic mode, Twinson runs as fast as he can, which sadly is not incredibly fast. Uh, The pitfall here is that if you run into an obstacle like a wall or a garbage can or something, Twinson will fall down and take damage. In this mode, pressing the action button makes Twinson jump. Aggressive mode puts Twinson's dukes up. He walks fairly slowly around, you know, kind of ready to go, and he's ready for a fight. This mode has two different methods of activation. So in the options, if you have aggressive mode set to automatic, uh, all you have to do is hold down the space bar and Twinson will start fighting. You just hold it down, he'll start punching and kicking and doing all kinds of stuff. In manual mode, though, you have to select aggressive mode like you do any other mode. There's a, either a hotkey, which I think is F3 or something like that, or you go into the behavior menu and move the thing over to aggressive mode, and then you're ready to go. So, a little more convoluted to get into, but in manual mode, you have a bit more control. So Twinson can kick, punch left, or punch right. And you can do that with different key combinations, spacebar up, spacebar left, spacebar right. I'm not sure if the different attacks really have any bearing on the outcome of a fight, but hey, why not? And finally, we have discrete mode. In this mode, Twinson quietly tiptoes around and becomes much harder to detect. Uh, the action here causes him to crouch and become all but invisible to enemies. Now, on top of these different behavior modes, there are also some consumable items in the world, 
which uh, which helped Winston on his quest. Hearts replenish his life. Uh, you can see how much life Twinson has on the behavior screen. Lucky Clovers act as Twinson's lives. Initially, you only have two clover boxes, meaning you can only store two clovers, which basically means you can only have two lives. Uh, a limited number of additional boxes are strewn around the world. And uh, remember, if you run out of clovers, the game is over and you start from the beginning. I learned this the hard way in my playthrough, which you can watch on YouTube. Uh, clovers can also be used to fully restore Twinson's life and magic power before he actually dies. Now, on top of these items, you also have access to things like magic flasks, which refill your magic power or your mana, I guess you can call it. Caches, which is K-A-S-E-S-E-S, caches, can be exchanged for items in uh, shops, which is, is basically money. They look like little gold coins, but they are called caches. And, uh, of course, there's keys, which can, of course, open locked doors. Keys are single use, so if you use one to open a door, it gets used up and you got to find yourself another one. So, since this is an adventure, you also have access to an inventory. Here you can access reusable items like uh, outfits. I think you get your hands on a robe at one point, uh, your hollow map, and most importantly, the magic ball. Uh, this becomes your go-to weapon in the game and is powered by your magic power. Uh, it has a boomerang mode, which can also be used to retrieve faraway items such as keys or hearts that uh, you can't quite get to. Once your magic power is depleted, uh, you can still use the magic ball, but its range is severely limited. So that's basically how we control Twinson and, you know, use him to interact with the world. Not exactly straightforward. As you can see, it took me a little bit of time to explain it. But, um, you know, so we're back. It's the beginning of the game. We're, uh, we're in a cell in the asylum and we, I don't know if we need to escape, but we probably should escape. So after milling around a little bit, an asylum guard comes into our open-topped cell on a suspended platform. If we do nothing, he'll keep coming back every once in a while until we realize what needs to be done. Switching into aggressive mode. Attack the guard, kill him. I think you kill him at least, he disappears. And uh, and you get on the platform. Voila, you are free of your cell. Uh, you make your way out of the asylum through a bit of fighting and sneaking and, and whatever and into the back of a garbage truck which takes you off of the... Uh, off of the asylum's property. Now you simply need to avoid soldiers and enemy clones, which uh, can teleport in at any moment, or sorry, teleport is, seems to be the way they pronounce it. And uh, you know, you kind of make your way back home. As soon as you do this, uh, you encounter your girlfriend, Zoe, and everyone's happy. You're back with uh, your love and all that, but the happy reunion does not last long. Dr. Funfrock's clones arrive to re-arrest Twinson. Zoe hides you, but she gets arrested herself. Your goal is now clear. You need to rescue Zoe. So to accomplish this, uh, you have to travel between the different islands in the southern hemisphere of Twinson. In your quest to figure out how to save your girlfriend, you come to realize that the dreams you've been having are in fact part of the prophecy, a legendary tale uh, about being about a being known as Sendel, who's said to inhabit the core of the planet and watch over the people of Twin Sun. It turns out Sendel is trying to warn you about the dangers Funfrock poses to the planet. Twinson realizes that the best way to save Zoe is to listen to Sendel and fulfill the prophecy. 
He throws in with a group of rebels and eventually gains access to the restricted northern hemisphere of the planet, where the final showdown with Funfrock in defense of Sendell takes place. Pretty cool. That's kind of that's kind of it. You know, the gameplay is, is you know, it's like an adventure game and, and all that, but a uh, little more actiony, little more a uh, little more frustration, a little more dying. Then again, you die in a lot of CR games, but uh, there you go. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, we're on a pretty good clip here. Time for a little bit of tech focus. So Little Big Adventure has some slightly more hefty system requirements than we usually see since we're into kind of a more cutting edge game, a little more into the middle of the 90s. So to get Little Big Adventure to run, you needed at least a 486 25 megahertz, four megs of RAM, 11 megs of drive space, DOS 5 or higher, a single speed CD-ROM, and a Sound Blaster or compatible sound card. Graphically, you needed to be running a 256 color SVGA VESA compatible graphics card with at least 512K of video RAM. Now, the interesting thing about this is the required compatibility with VESA local bus architecture. I don't think I've ever really discussed it in any great detail. So since this is the first, probably one of the first times I brought it up, uh, let's take a bit of time here to remind ourselves what the heck is Vesa Local Bus? So back in the early 90s, uh, we started to see a bottleneck in uh, the development of early 3D graphics hardware. The bottleneck was the aging ISA bus. Uh, you remember the old ISA slots that you put your cards into before PCI came into existence? Remember they were pretty slow, uh, no plug and play capabilities. ISA was, uh, was a little bit of fun to play with. So. To get around this uh, this bandwidth problem that they basically had, hardware manufacturers of the time started building in what they were calling local buses onto their motherboards. Uh, a, a local bus, well, let's just say in general, a bus is basically a way to get data from one part of the motherboard, one part of the computer, to another part of the computer. It basically does, it, it's a bus line, right? So it does what a bus does. Say data is little people, data wait, you know, at their their entrance onto the bus line. So say the sound card wants to send data to the CPU. Well, the data goes from the sound card and it waits on the bus and then it takes the bus and goes to the CPU and then the CPU does what it needs to do with the data that the sound card sent. So a local bus does exactly what you'd think a local bus line does. It gives you a direct route uh, to the CPU for, in this case, the graphics card, which bypassed the slow ISA bus. Uh, of course, since this wasn't in any way standardized, each manufacturer implemented local bus in their own way, which was basically, as you would imagine, a nightmare for graphics card manufacturers because if you know one motherboard manufacturer designed their bus this way, then they had to make a card to support that, and then otherwise they'd have to make you know another card that supported a bus of a different type and blah, 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 just a big 
mess. So in 1992, VESA, or the Video Electronics Standards Association, defined a local bus standard. What ended up coming out of this was a design for what we call an additional edge connector, which was placed in line after the standard ISA bus slot. So you had, if you had a, a VESA local bus capable video card, it would have pins for a standard ISA slot, plus a little gap, and then another set of pins further down the card, which would fit into the new brown VESA local bus slot, which basically sat at the bottom of the first, probably usually the first ISA slot in the computer. This extra connector provided additional bandwidth for data to flow across. So the ISA bus still handled the traditional IO functions like it normally did, and the new port handled higher speed memory mapped IO and DMA requests. So the advantage to this edge connector design is that you didn't have a high if you didn't have a high performance video card or a high performance storage controller or something else that took advantage of this VESA local bus connector, you could just put a standard ISA or ISA card in that slot. No harm, no foul, you don't lose out on anything. So VESA local bus was always designed as a stopgap solution and therefore only really existed for a short time on 486 motherboards. By the last generation of 486s, say, you know, kind of the 486DX4 100 days and into the first gen of uh, Pentiums, the ones that had a horrible error in them, uh, ISA with VESA local bus had basically been replaced by what we now consider more traditional PCI slots, which are still in use even today. So that's enough about VESA local bus. This is also uh, the part where I usually talk about the game's music. So another very cool aspect, as always, of Little Big Adventure is, of course, the music. Uh, it was composed by a man we've discussed before, Philippe Vacher. Uh, well, Vacher always had a passion for music. Uh, he also studied computer science in school. Uh, coming out of his comp sci degree, though, Vacher quickly realized that programming was not for him. Uh, he soon joined Infograms Entertainment to create sound effects for 1991's Advantage Tennis. One year later, though, in 1992, is when he got his big break, writing the score for Alone in the Dark. Soon after the Alone in the Dark came out, he left Infograms for Adeline Software, which is a company we are going to talk about in just a moment, and uh, he was tasked with writing the music for Little Big Adventure. The music is both epic, ominous, cute, and fun, you know, as, as you've been hearing throughout this, uh, this section. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev, story time. So, Little Big Adventure is the brainchild of Mr. Frederick Raynal, who we already discussed way back in episode 18. Yep, Frederick Raynal was the man that brought us alone in the dark. That aside... It's been a while, so, you know, let's do a little refresher on the man. If you want a lot of detail about his early life, go check out episode 18, but here's the Coles Notes version. So, Frederick Reynal was born in 1966 in Brive de la Gaillarde, France. In his early high school years, uh, he created some LCD games for the Sinclair ZX81. Uh, from there, he got into more software-focused projects, made a game or two, and created a series of Minitel emulators uh, from around 1986 to 1988. In 1990, he joined French game development house Infograms, 
where his first task was to build the DOS port of the game Alpha Waves. Uh, now, Alpha Waves was originally developed for the Atari ST, and it is arguably, uh, I was going to say one of the first, but I think my reading showed that it is arguably the first fully 3D platformer. Now, this was six years before Mario 64 came out, and uh, I think Battlezone something something was uh, is generally considered kind of the more popular first one, but this one that came out in 1990, Alpha Waves, was really the first fully 3D platform game. Kind of a crazy game. Go watch some video. You basically jump around these cubes and stuff happens. It's, uh, it's a little bit trippy. Now, in reality, this port of Alpha Waves was not really a port. Uh, the original game, developed by Christophe de Dinchin, or Dean, 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 yeah, I'll say Dean, Dean, French people, correct me, please. Uh, anyways, Christophe <laughs> uh, wrote the game uh, in Motorola 68000 Assembler. Now, because of this, there couldn't be a port done in the traditional sense because assembly language programming is platform-specific. Therefore, the only way to port the game from the Atari ST to the Amiga and to DOS was to completely rewrite it in, uh, in DOS's case, the x86 assembler. Now, Raynaud was so convinced that uh, the time was right for 3D graphics that he fought and convinced Infogrames Upper Management to break their policy of not porting assembly language games, basically because, as I just said, it's a ton of effort. He convinced them made the port and uh, kind of made his bones and then went on to uh, develop the game that he may be best known for, 1992's Alone in the Dark. Now, that game was an incredible success, as we talked about in, in, that, uh, in that show, and uh, he soon began work on the sequel, Alone in the Dark 2. Now, this is where things began to go a little bit south. Uh, Ray Nall and his development team had very strong misgivings about uh, the direction Infograms wanted to take with the Alone in the Dark series. Alone in the Dark 2 kind of toned down a lot of the horror aspects of the game and focused a lot more on combat and, uh, and things uh, like that. So with these misgivings and with these disagreements, uh, Raynal and much of his team decided to leave Infograms and begin their own venture. Uh, thus was born Adeline Software International in 1993. So the new Adeline International team uh, decided they wanted to make a 3D adventure game. Uh, they wanted to take things they had learned from the development of Alone in the Dark and apply them to kind of the next gen. So in 1993, the predominant gaming machine was the 386. Uh, knowing this and using the capabilities of the 386 as a baseline, Raynell realized they could up the ante from uh, what was being done in the, uh, in the current adventure space. The performance of high-end 386s allowed for an increase in resolution from 320 x 200 to 640 x 480, while still being able to maintain a color palette of 256 colors. In addition, coding to the 386 allowed Raynal and his team to take full advantage of this new advanced 32-bit platform. The 286 and before, well, I don't know. The 286 was at least 16-bit, and I think originally the uh, the original machines might have been uh, the 8086s might even have only been 8-bit. Don't quote me on that. I think it's true though. And uh, you know, this 16-bit platform basically couldn't handle the amount of data required to render the higher-resolution graphics that they were after. They could only use 16-bit uh, addresses, addressable memory. They could only use 16-bit integers, 16-bit floating-point numbers. So. You know, that, that really limited the amount of data they could work with at one 
time. 32-bit was kind of, you know, just gave them a lot more, a lot more room to play, let's say. So in addition to the 640 by 480 graphics, Raynal also wanted his game to be built in uh, kind of a, a pseudo 3D isometric perspective. He felt that an isometric view would allow him to model very impressive, complex, multi-level environments with the fidelity that he wanted. Uh, this was one major issue he had with Alone in the Dark. He felt the environments were very small and confined and viewable from only very few fixed camera angles. He thought that, well, the isometric view was still only a single angle, it provided a better vantage point from which to view the game world. Now, the reason he had not done a game in isometric perspective until this point was a pretty valid one. In Alone in the Dark, your character had full freedom of movement through the environment. In isometric games, though, up to this point, characters could only move in four directions, up, down, left, and right. Now, this was generally due to the fact that games were tile-based and that characters were 2D sprites rendered on a 2D background. Uh, the isometric angle merely made them appear to be 3D. Now, his new game wouldn't work this way. Since he was going to be building his character models in full 3D and putting them on a 2D background, he didn't have the 4D, uh, the four direction limitation. Too many Ds, 2D, 3D, 4D. So he didn't have this forward direction limitation. His 3D model characters could turn in any direction and walk forward and backward with full 360 degrees of freedom because they were 3D models and they were defined with full, you know, from all different angles. So the development team really went out of their way to try and push the envelope of what they thought an adventure game could be. Uh, they tried to do everything a little bit differently. Further to this end, uh, you know, they came up with a very quirky and irreverent world that was simultaneously innocent and somewhat cutesy, but also dark and oppressive just underneath, uh, you know, kind of its candy-coated shell. Uh, from the design of the characters to the silly names people and places have, you know, this game definitely leaves an impression. So by the time the game released, uh, the team working on what had become known as Little Big Adventure had grown to 12 people. Uh, LBA was very, very revolutionary and very cutting edge. Uh, despite deciding to code to the capabilities of the 386, the game ended up requiring a 486 on release. Uh, the CD-ROM version released first, containing music, full motion video cutscenes, and voice acting. Uh, the disc version released a bit later for older machines and uh, had all those kind of really fancy multimedia things uh, removed. You know, its semi-open-world style was very revolutionary for 1994. Uh, there were certainly complaints about the game's controls and the very kind of nebulous save system, but that did not stop people from loving it. Of course, work soon began on a sequel. I think one more game came out from Adeline before, but uh, once that was done, Little Big Adventure 2, or in North America, Twinson's Odyssey, uh, came into being. Hello, I'm Twinson, the hero of this adventure. Can you see me up in the box up there with my girlfriend Zoe? That's my trusty friend Dinofly on the right, and that's a portrait of Sendel, our benevolent goddess who breathes life into everything. Thanks to the medallion and the magical power she gave me, 
I was able to save our beautiful planet Twinsome. I had to investigate all the islands to save Zoe and prevent our world from being destroyed. The terrible dictator Funfrock had the entire planet in his grip until I came along. Yep, I'm proud to say Zoe and I are expecting good news. We'll soon be hearing the pitter-pat of tiny feet, so we gotta hurry up and get everything ready. Our world lives in peace nowadays. Everything's calm, and we all have our place in the sun. So, as we can hear, all is well on Twin Sun. What... We were about to see, though, as kind of the music started getting a little bit ominous right at the end, is that a sudden storm covers Citadel Island. The Dino Fly, uh, the creature from Twinson's Dream in the first game, and who we meet later on in that game, uh, is struck by lightning and crashes outside Twinson and Zoe's house. In an attempt to help him, Twinson tries to visit a healing wizard on another island. Well, it turns out that ferry crossings between islands are canceled due to this ongoing storm. Twinson convinces his island's weather wizard, Bersimon, to help him out. Uh, Bersimon dissipates the storm. Soon after, an alien race known as the Esmers land on the planet. Uh, they want to be friends, it seems. However, it begins to be noticed that Twinson's wizards are disappearing. Could these aliens have something to do with it? Well, Twinson joins the wizard school to find out. Thus begins Twinson's next adventure, taking him to another planet to encounter a familiar enemy. So that's the story in a very vague nutshell. It's definitely a bit more convoluted and involved uh, than that, but let's get into gameplay. So the main difference between the first and second games are the viewing modes. So indoors, we have the same old 3D isometric look from the original game. However, when we're outside, the game switches into more of a 3D perspective mode. Uh, this is much more cinematic and allows scenes to look much more dynamic. As well, absolutely all the characters and vehicles in the game are 3D modeled, uh, allowing for very, very cool camera work during cutscenes and, you know, really allowing things to rotate from different angles and, uh, and all that. Now, the world is much bigger than in the first game, with a total of three planets to visit, each with their own islands on, you know, individual planets. Uh, the controls are also tweaked so as to be slightly more user-friendly. Now, for example, in athletic mode, Twinson no longer takes damage if uh, he runs into an obstacle. Uh, the game's music is again composed by Philippe Vacher. Again, very, very good, very, very cool, interesting score. So Little Big Adventure 2 released in 1997 to great reviews. Uh, the game world continued to be interesting, varied and quirky. In addition, in this game, um, we had a huge area to explore in Little Big Adventure's kind of really cool semi-open world fashion. So, you know, really what that means is that some part of the worlds are blocked off until certain events occur, but once they're open, any part of the world can be visited in any order. So, really successful game, uh, you know, lots, lots, lots of positive reviews, both from, uh, from gamers and reviewers alike. So, where can we get Little Big Adventure today? Well... 
for uh, the traditional versions, we need only to go to GOG.com for both games. Uh, they're both there for download. I think they're five bucks each, five ninety nine, something like that. Uh, they both run quite well on my Win8 machine. If you buy both of them, you get a little bit of a discount. Uh, if you want a mobile fix, though, the first game, Little Big Adventure, uh, is available for iOS and Android on their respective stores. Again, I think about uh, six bucks each. Uh, the controls are slightly modified for the touch interface, and uh, it's actually quite an improvement uh, in, uh, in the gameplay experience. On September 22, 2004, Oceanic Flight 815 left Sydney, Australia, bound for Los Angeles, and crashed on a remote and mysterious island somewhere in the South Pacific. The survivors quickly realized this was no ordinary island. The groundbreaking Emmy Award-winning drama Lost ran on ABC television from September 22, 2004 to May 23, 2010 and remains to this day one of the greatest television series of all time. Relive every moment of this amazing series as we reopen the hatch and take you deep inside each episode of this epic series. My name is Joyce. And I'm Al. And on our show, Lost Flight 815, We'll cover each episode of this immensely popular series in a unique way. We'll watch the show as we record and share our thoughts and lost facts while you listen to the episode with us. So tune in to the Lost 815 podcast and visit us on the web at www.lostflight815.com and relive one of the greatest shows of all time. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at LostFlight815. So, does Little Big Adventure hold up today? <sighs> well, I hate doing this, but sadly, the first game really does not. I understand what a technological marvel this was at the time. And perhaps if you know I had played it then, which I didn't, I'll, I'll tell you that right off the bat, so I don't have nostalgia on my side. And uh, you know, perhaps this time around, if I had had a bit more time and a bit more patience. I'd understand it a bit better, but based on my recent playthrough, which again, you can go check out on YouTube, this game provided me with nothing but frustration. Uh, firstly, I'm really not a fan of the graphical style. It's not that it's early 3D and it looks like bad or anything like that. I know I've said that in the past, but uh, but this isn't the case here. You know, I appreciated the style of Alone in the Dark. This game was just much, much too cutesy looking for me. I felt like all the characters looked dumb especially Twinson. It's just kind of like these weird bubbly things and with like weird top-knot hairdos and it just didn't jive with me, let's say. So secondly, the voice acting and the writing in this game are awful. At first, I assumed it was simply because the game was translated to English by non-native English speakers, but then I YouTubed the original French game and the writing was equally bad. Maybe they were going for a sort of kid's book tone and if they did, then they succeeded, but it really feels to me like a 10-year-old wrote the dialogue in this game. Finally, and most importantly, I would think, are the controls. The movement and combat controls are incredibly frustrating. Twinson turns very slowly, and the combat is very evocative of the really clunky combat system from Alone in the Dark, and I feel like, despite the clunkiness of that game, the combat system worked better there than it did here. On top of those movement controls, 
I have no idea how or when the save game mechanism fires. They say that once you clear an area, the game gets saved. So I moved from one screen to the other, assumed that it saved, left the game and came back in only to have myself start over at the beginning. Also, they introduced the concept of health and lives into an adventure game. Now, I know Alone in the Dark had that, but it wasn't quite the same. I died too many times, and despite saving my game, you know, I got shoved back to the beginning, and my save game was automatically overwritten. I mean, who came up with this? It's the most frustrating thing in the world. Apparently, you have to go and manually copy your game to another save slot, if you don't want this to happen. So basically, Little Big Adventure is on auto hardcore. If you die, your game gets overwritten and you got to start over. What is this? So with regard to the first game, I honestly cannot recommend it as an enjoyable experience. I understand what a revolution it was at the time, but today with you know the way we play games now or maybe the, the, the way my brain has developed or the amount of patience I have, it's just not fun. The second game is decidedly better. A lot of the issues are fixed, uh, better controls. I'm pretty sure there's a better save system. So I'd say if you want to try a little big adventure, YouTube the first one if you really want the story, and then try the second one. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, so that's that. Thanks to those who commented this week, and thanks to everyone who keeps coming back week after week to download and listen to the show. I always appreciate you guys, love your feedback, all that stuff. So next time, we got sort of a milestone show, episode 50. So I'm going to do a series I've been wanting to cover for a long time. Game series that kind of has, in one way or another, defined probably my life you know, from the, the, the mid-90s up until even today. Next week, next time, we're going to be talking Warcraft. I'm going to focus mainly on the first three RTS games. I'll mention WoW, of course, but I'm much more interested in the games that resulted in the most popular MMO and possibly the most popular video game in the history of the world. So if you've got comments about Warcraft, be it the RTS games or WoW or whatever, you got anything to say about Little Big Adventure, if, if you liked it, Tell me why. You know, I, I I hate saying that games don't hold up, but it really didn't. So anyways, Warcraft, Little Big Adventure, anything else you want to talk about, drop me a line at podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer, as always, for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Uh, you can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476 if you want to hear me complain about stuff, uh, I do it there. Uh, and you can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I started, uh, you know, I put up some playthrough stuff, uh, put up a little big adventure. I try and put up at least uh, an hour worth of video per uh, per episode Hopefully an hour worth of video per game that I'm going to talk about. Uh, didn't get to do that for a little big adventure too, but um, I'm really looking forward to playing some Warcraft and some Warcraft 2 and some Warcraft 3. So uh, definitely going to be some videos for that. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews there. Really, really, really appreciate those five stars if you think I deserve it. So that's that. And I will see you next time for Warcraft here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated.
You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.